It's great to be here to open God's word with you. Now, who is excited for tomorrow's eclipse? Who's looking forward to that? I think there's a lot of people excited about it. I know a handful are driving south to go see the total eclipse. And in case you have not been on the internet anytime recently, there is going to be a total eclipse tomorrow passing through the United States. First one since 1979. And for those in Salem, Oregon, tracing a path all the way to Charleston, South Carolina, there will be a complete and total eclipse with over two minutes of darkness at each location. In those two minutes, the sky will go black. The temperature will drop. If you listen carefully, all the animals and birds will hush and stars will appear in the sky in the middle of the day. There'll be a faint ring of warm haze around the moon which will allow observers to take in this rare sight of a total eclipse. For those of us staying here in in Seattle, we will see a 90% eclipse. And so the sky will darken considerably, but not go black. I don't think we'll see stars, although I will be looking. And, uh, but for those who are diehard, you've got to go south. I'm looking at somebody who's going south tomorrow. And I'm looking at another person who I know is going south tomorrow to go see this entire, actually they're going south tonight and they're going to spend the night there to see this total eclipse. Now eclipses have had a great importance in history. Many ancient stories refer to the sun as being eaten and it became a fearful fascination. Oftentimes I thought a king would die or somebody important would die after an eclipse. In the year 130 BC, a man named Hipparchus was able to calculate the distance from the earth to the moon for the first time. He in Turkey experienced the total eclipse, but heard that 600 miles south in Egypt, only four-fifths of the moon or of the sun was covered, and he was able to calculate a range of distance, and he was actually quite accurate. Isaac Newton used an eclipse to prove his theory of gravity and the moon, the fact the moon was going around the earth in a constant motion thanks to gravity. He was able to tell his naysayers that at 9.05 a.m., London will experience a full eclipse. He was off by five minutes. But they were convinced, and Isaac Newton became a hero. More importantly, it is eclipses that have allowed us to date our Old Testament. The Assyrians kept track of eclipses in their historical annals. And because of the consistency of the moon's trajectory, astronomers today can calculate backwards in time and correspond with the many eclipses the Assyrians marked and figure out the time frame for the Assyrians. Then using the Bible, the Bible and the Assyrian history connect, particularly King Ahab in 1 Kings 20 and 22, we've been able to date the kings of Israel. Quite fascinating, all thanks to the eclipse. It's also incredible to think how a full eclipse takes place. The sun's diameter and the width of the sun is exactly 400 times the size of the moon's diameter. But then get this, the sun is also 400 times farther away from earth than the moon. Imagine that. If it was off at all, we wouldn't get this full and total eclipse. It would either disappear entirely or we'd still always see part of the the sun. And so to us, the moon and the sun appear in the sky the exact same size, hence a perfect eclipse. Now, who do you think designed that? Who do you think came up with such an amazing thing? Genesis 1, 14 to 15 reads, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. 
Interestingly, God first says about the lights in the galaxy, let them be for signs. God designed the lights above as to, give, to be as signs for this world, so that we can track things, use them to mark dates, use them to plot our course on the open seas, and to mark times and events. It's an amazing, amazing thing that God's given to us. And so when you see the eclipse tomorrow, when the sky darkens around you, think upon how great and brilliant God is and worship him. Worship him for his creative brilliance. He is a genius infinitely beyond all geniuses. Also, worship him for his tremendous power. Just think of the sun, how it gives us light and heat and is also so powerful that though thousands of miles away can burn our skin and damage our eyes. God is so powerful. He is so worthy of our worship. But this morning, we have a question to ask. And the question is, are we worthy to bring him worship? That is, will God accept our worship? Turn with me to Psalm 15. If you're not already there, Psalm 15 is our text this morning. And we will see this question asked and answered. You might notice in your outline, you've got a Q and A almost, a question and then four points giving the answer. And if you would be a worthy worshiper of God Almighty, you must heed Psalm 15. Let's look at it as I read, starting in verse 1. Psalm 15, verse 1. Psalm of David. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. Let me open our, our time in a Brief word of prayer. Lord God, bless us by this passage today. There is much truth in here to intake, many charges for us to receive. God, I pray for my own heart, knowing that I fall short, knowing that all of us fall short at times. Lord God, I pray that you would give us the trajectory that pleases you. Change our hearts, Lord God. Conform us to your image. Use your word now in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you may have noticed a pattern as I read this psalm. All of the expectations of the worthy worshiper deal with one's character in life and what comes from one's lips. And so the, the key takeaway for today is that for God to be honored by your worship, your life and your lips must be aligned with his. For God to be honored by your worship, your life and your lips must be aligned with his. Now this immediately begs the question, why life and lips and not also labors? Why can't we do things like give money to the poor, or feed the homeless? Why aren't these taken into account when God looks at the worthy worshiper? Well, for one, anybody, anybody can do good deeds. The doing of what might be considered a good deed does not reveal what's in the heart. 
This should be readily apparent when you look at the Pharisees in the New Testament. The Pharisees did many, many good deeds. They, They gave much in the way of offering. They looked so good on the outside, and yet internally they were nasty. They were filthy people. And that's why Isaiah can say that outside of a real relationship with God, all of our righteous deeds, those that look righteous, all of our righteous deeds are filthy garments to God. So our deeds, efforts, and labors don't give an accurate picture of our inner being. And it is the inner man that makes up the true portrait of a person. Another reason, perhaps, for this lack of labor and the expectations is because not everyone is capable of physically doing these deeds. The lame and bedridden person may not be able to perform physical expectations, yet they still can have an inner character that is pleasing or displeasing to God. All humanity is capable of having character. All humanity is capable of speaking. And even if they're deaf or mute and cannot speak to each other, they can still speak to God. Everyone has a character. Everyone can speak. And so making the requirements about life and lips and not our labors ensures that we all can meet God's standard for a worthy worshiper. So now that that's settled, let's look into our text. Look into our text. Question on the day is, are you a worthy worshiper? Look back with me at verse 1. It begins, O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? The NASB uses the word abide here in the first line to express the Hebrew word which means to sojourn or to dwell or to stay for a time. The focus of the word is on a temporary nature of a visit, not a long-term permanent stay. And so what we see is that nobody's trying to live in God's tent permanently. It's God's home. It's not our home. It's God's home, his tent. And the tent represents the tabernacle, which was really just basically a giant tent with, many, with special rooms. And, and in David's day, the temple had not been built yet. And so we know that God dwelt in a tent. Now, one could view this, this language in this first line as, as speaking of God being the host, and we are the potential guests who may come into his presence. The question then asked is equivalent to, Yahweh, who, who shall be a guest in your house? The rest of the psalm describes the kind of people that God hosts at his home and at his table. The second line has the verb dwell. This accurately depicts the Hebrew, speaking of settling down or taking up residency. And the, the holy hill referred to is, is uh, obviously known as Mount Zion. And it's that area that surrounds God's tent. And so this second line refers to those who had pitched their tent close to the dwelling place of God Most High. Who were those capable of close proximity to God's dwelling? Who could settle down near him in the same neighborhood? Now, we might be quick to spiritualize this verse and think of it as referring to our eternal destiny with God forever in heaven. The idea being, who can go to heaven and dwell with God forever? Now, many have made salvation the meaning of this verse, and it's easy as you read this to quickly make that the meaning of this text. But we must not forget the context that we're looking in, the context of the biblical passage. That's one of the many benefits of going through a a book week after week like we're doing through Acts is the context just continually builds on itself. Here in this this single message where we pull a passage out, it's a little more difficult, especially in a psalm that don't have uh, a necessary context from the surrounding area. So what's our context here? What's our context? If you note, it starts off a psalm of David. A psalm of David. So we know David wrote it. Second, we note the reference here in verse 1 to God's holy hill. 
got holy hill, which is a clear reference to Mount Zion or Jerusalem. And so we quickly note that David wrote this psalm later in life after he'd become a king because he had already moved the worship from Shiloh to Jerusalem. So this is happening later in his life. And it's from that basis that commentator H.C. Leupold speculates that it was likely written during the period of David's life when he desired to restore the ark and to establish public worship. Now to quote Leupold, he says, Any man who has lived close to God recognizes the pitfalls of formalism and ritualism that continually tend to corrupt any worship that is cast into some kind of fixed form. David may, therefore, well have seen that. After public worship is instituted, the nation should be instructed not to be content with the externals of worship. In other words, David is asking in this psalm, what are the marks of a true worshiper? End quote. What are the marks of a true worshiper? Now think, think about it. When David wrote, there was a physical tent which contained the ark of God, the seat of his holy presence. There was a physical hill upon which this tent was pitched, Mount Zion. And so we should not quickly spiritualize who may go to heaven to be with God, but rather who may approach God to worship him. Who may approach God to worship him? That was what David was asking before Israel in his day. And that is what God is asking us as a church today. Who is worthy to approach God in worship? Who will God accept as a worshiper? From whom will God accept worship? Whom does God warmly receive? May we, may we come to him with just any manner of life? Or does the spiritual place of our soul actually matter when we come before him in worship? Friends, do we know how to approach God? Have we forgotten there are things required of us? We must prepare ourselves for an audience with the king. Our spiritual lives do matter as we approach him. May it not be said of us, as it was said by our Lord to the Pharisees, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Matthew 15, 9. Let's now ask ourselves, am I approved by God to worship him? Is my worship today in vain? Is my life pleasing to him? Am I a worthy worshiper? There are four aspects of our life and lips that this passage searches. Let us look at ourselves now through God's word as we seek to answer this question. Am I a worthy worshiper? Point number one, you see it there in your notes. I've got a blank for you. So the blank is look at your character. Look at your character. In verse two. And it should be noted first that in one sense, all four of our aspects look at our character. And this, li- in this, this list that we have here is actually not even exhaustive of God's expectations. It's representative. It would take the whole Bible to see what God expects of us, right? But this list is a great representation here in verse 2, we have essentials on character. So we could say the whole thing's on character, but the, this verse really boils it down to three certain principles. And, and the verbs in this verse um, are, are participles, which is very unique in Hebrew, and it expresses the thought that these must be enduring attributes within the person. So it's actually looking at our character. They're not one-off actions, but they are way-of-life qualities. 
And so just as one naturally starts a salad with a salad on a four course meal, we will naturally start with the essence of a man when we consider who he is before God. So the worthy worshiper will embody these three things. Let's look at our verse. Verse two, it says, he who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. What do these three mean? Let's look closely at the first and we'll follow up briefly on the latter two. Integrity here, integrity in our verse, he who walks with integrity is a way to translate the word tamim. Tamim. It's a very broad term and it's usually translated as blameless or, or wholesome. The idea is without defect, without, without blemish. It's the Hebrew word that was used to describe a perfect animal sacrifice, the kind that are acceptable to God. You'd have an Israelite, he would, he would find a fine, full-grown ram, one of his prized breeding stock, the very best in his flock. You could see him, he runs his eye and hands over it to make sure it has no hidden blemish. He takes it to the priest, and who also gives it a meticulous examination. The ram is then slain, and the priest exposes all the inward parts, watching them carefully for any imperfection. But it is a perfect sacrifice, tamim, without blemish. The worshiper who would come before God must be tamim, without blemish. He must be blameless. Now, to walk a blameless life is a high standard, right? To live a life of integrity is tough. The blameless life must be blameless Monday through Saturday and not just on Sunday. This is our calling, brothers and sisters. We are called to holiness. In fact, we are called to be perfect as God is perfect. Is your life being conformed to God's own holiness? Are you living a life consistent with God's character? To obey is better than sacrifice, friends. It is better to be right with God through obedience than to offer him your sacrifice of praise. He will not accept worship without obedience. Blameless obedience can only be accomplished in the light of grace. In the light of grace. God's grace is ample and enough for your failures. God is not looking for perfect people, but repenters who are striving for holiness. The person who is the worthy worshiper will recognize their lack of perfection and confess it to God. To quote Matthew Henry, he has spots indeed, but he does not paint them. The idea is we don't hide our shortcomings and our sins. We don't try to cover them from God. No, we confess them to God. 1 John 1, 9, and we receive forgiveness from the Lord. We confess. You must walk in integrity, living a blameless life. God will not warmly welcome your worship today if that is not your desire. If that is not your desire to live a holy life, pleasing to him. Friends, are you seeking after holiness in your life? After pure Christ-likeness? And the second phrase, working righteousness, are your deeds and thoughts and efforts right and holy? The things you do, are they pleasing to God? The worthy worshiper does what is deemed righteous. That which is morally and ethically right according to the standard of God. The person who is thus acceptable to God is the one who conforms his or her life to the standards of God as he has revealed them in his holy word. This isn't just about doing outward good works. Though certainly that should be present in your life, James 2. This is about living a morally right life according to the revealed word of God. 
The third line in verse 2 also touches on heart motives as it refers to our inward speech. Do you speak truthfully in your heart? Now, why the heart? The heart was the, the central system of the Hebrew, the Hebrew mind. It's where, it's where the will and emotions, not the emotions, excuse me, it's where the will and the mind and the thinking came from. And so it gives the motive behind the words. A person, a person can speak what is true, but have the intent to deceive. Right? We can utter what is technically true, but with the idea of concealing our motives, concealing our thoughts. So is truth deep within your heart? Not simply biblical truth, but integrity truth. That kind that is not two-faced or scheming for one's own gain. Jesus tells us, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Are you reliable and dependable? Speaking what is right and what corresponds to reality. Sincerity is the key. When it's from the heart, there can be no hidden agenda or half-truths. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Now these threefold characteristics are the basic makeup of the worthy worshiper of God. A holy life is patterned after these. And the one who would enter God's tent through grace strives after these. Now our passage turns in verse 3 from what the worthy person is in character to what they are not in conversation, what they are not in conversation. So point two, look at your conversation. This is a call to look at your conversation. We've just seen the worthy worshiper speaks truth within themselves, but how do they speak to others? They are not slanderers, gossipers, scorners, and speakers of evil. Look at verse three as I reread it. Verse three, he does not slander with his tongue. He does no evil to his neighbor, nor take up reproach against his friend. Tongue is a powerful weapon, we well know. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, said James, the brother of Jesus. To slander is to verbally attack the life and character of others. And it was this tongue, this offense, that essentially killed Mary Livingstone, the wife of well-known African pioneer missionary David Livingstone. You see, Mary Livingstone was never strong enough to be the constant companion of a pioneer through the African bush. For years, she struggled behind her husband, surrounded only by native women and the many various challenges for a proper Scot, for a proper Scottish woman. After a time with little children hanging onto her skirts, she could struggle on no more, and so she gave up and stayed home with her little ones to pray for her husband as he continued valiantly on. But then the gossipers at the white settlements got busy. What is she doing here, not supporting her husband properly? Or why would a man want to leave his wife and plunge into Africa, save the desire to be as far from her as possible? After she could only take so much of this scandalous abuse, Mary rejoined David on the frontier. Within just three months of her reunion with David on the dangerous wilderness mission, Mary contracted malaria and passed away. David wept over her grave, a weeping unheard by those gossipers on the comfortable and safe coast of Africa. They had, done, they had done their deadly work months before. With our speech, we must be so very careful not to tear people down. It is normal for our carnal flesh to speak poorly of others. James 3.8 reads this, No human being can tame the tongue. 
It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so, James says. How can a worthy worshiper possibly curse his brother, curse his neighbor, and worship God with the same mouth? James says this can hardly be the case. David says in our passage, no way. Friends, look at your conversations. Consider how important your words are to God. Do you comment negatively about others? Do you speak poorly about your spouse to others? Nobody should be hearing dirt from you about your spouse. Nobody should ever think less about your spouse because of you. And I'm preaching to myself here too because I know I have failed Veronica in this regard. Absolutely. A whine here, a small jab there. These are like daggers if your spouse hear them, hears them. And they are backstabbing blows if they don't. And guys, friends, God's, God, excuse me, God hates this. God hates this. Or what about you who use social media regularly? What about, what are you posting about others? What are you texting? What are you saying in your Snapchats? Just because it goes away in seven seconds does not mean that God did not see your gossip. Is your snap streak snapping your relationship with God? God is not pleased with worship from those who speak poorly of others. The word reproach at the end of verse 3 is the idea of scorn or taunt. It's something that brings ridicule or shame upon a person. The verse says he does not take up a reproach against his friend. The word take up conveys that he will not bring up reproach. He will not invent reproach on someone else, but it also means that he will not let reproach go on unchecked. If he hears scorn or ridicule being passed around about a person, it ends with him. He does not take up what he hears to continue the drumbeat. It ends with you. The worthy worshiper, to quote Matthew Henry again, speaks the best of everybody and the worst of nobody. Speaks the best of everybody and the worst of nobody. That same tongue that honors God also honors his fellow man. So how are you speaking lately? What is coming from your heart and out of your lips? If you are hurting others with your words, know that God is not pleased. Your worship today may be in vain, unacceptable to him. But friends, always remember God's grace. As James says, nobody can tame the tongue. If we could, we would be a perfect man, James says. But God forgives also our speech. Confess and change. Ask for the grace of God to wash your mouth and heart and to give you holy conversations. Holy conversations. Now, before we think that we may never think negatively of anyone, we get a unique and unexpected turn in verse 4, which brings us to point 3. Look at your commitments. Look at your commitments. There's two types of commitments in this verse. The commitment we have to our fellow man and the commitments we make. We'll look at the first, uh, the first one first, naturally. Look again at verse 4. Verse 4 says, In whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those uh, who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. 
It's answering the question again, what is a worthy worshiper? And whose eyes a reprobate is despised. What is, this, what, is this, what is this looking at here? Well, the worthy worshiper of God has the ability to know who to despise and who to honor. He knows who to avoid as a friend and role model and who also to commit himself to, who to follow after. The verb despise, it means to, it means to despise, to treat lightly, to treat with contempt. And this is how God's people are to look on those who hate God. The idea in whose eyes is important. Just as God does not typically display his anger and his rejection of the wicked today, neither do we. We don't display it. In, in our minds, we hold them of little esteem. We despise them, and especially we despise their ways. It does not mean that we treat them meanly, that we don't show them grace, but we do not admire their life, nor do we support them in their choices and their actions. Those whom God rejects, we are to reject as role models. They may seem to prosper in life. They may seem to have all the excesses and pleasantries of life, but remember their end. Like Asaph in Psalm 73 Asaph remembers from God's word that the end of the wicked is death and eternal hell. Their temporary gain is just that. It's temporary. They will suffer eternally in hell when at the final judgment, God despises them for their unrepentant wickedness. Now, this does not mean we as God's people never talk to the wicked and that we think of them as a lost cause for salvation. They're not. God can save any soul. But in judging them spiritually, we agree with God that they are hell-bound. Psalm 14 fittingly falls right before this psalm. And Psalm 14 is really the opposite of a worthy worshiper. Look back at Psalm 14. I want to read the first three verses. Psalm 14, 1 to 3 says this. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. You may have noticed that Paul picks up this passage in his powerful argument of man's sin nature in Romans 3. This wicked sinner in Psalm 14, this is everyone apart from Jesus Christ. If you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ, this is ultimately where you stand before God, seen as a fool by God, seen as corrupt by him and as hell-bound. You may be nice on the outside. You may do good deeds and you might even try to make sure your goods outweigh your bads. You might think if you just do enough good, God will accept you into heaven, but unfortunately, it does not work that way. God has looked down from heaven and has seen that there is no one who does good? Not even one. No one ultimately seeks after him. And oh, unrepentant unbeliever, that is you. That is you. And so God came. He came, born of a virgin, to seek and save the lost. He came perfect and sinless to die for you and to cleanse you from your sin. Christ's death has the power to transform your heart and soul. His resurrection is proof of his transforming power. If you believe Jesus is Lord and that he died and rose again, you will be saved. God will no longer despise you. He will love you. He will adopt you 
as his son or daughter. You'll be forgiven of all your sin and viewed as perfect, just like his son, Jesus Christ. Will you give your life to him? Repent of your sins. Turn to him if you never have. For those who are saved, remember who you are and who you live for. Don't seek the life, the wealth, the good times of those whom God despises. Seek the narrow road. Live for God alone. And as our verse says, honor those who do that admirably. The worthy worshiper is committed not just to despising whom God rejects, but is committed to honoring those who fear God. The verb means to praise, to treat with honor, to give respect to. We are called to honor and respect those who are notable examples of godliness, those whose piety and reverence for God shine forth brightly. Let's be committed to them. Now our commitment to holiness goes to another place other than our thoughts of others and and who we look to as our role models. It also looks at our promises to other people, our actual commitments that we make to others. The latter part of our verse four says, the worthy worshiper swears to his own hurt and does not change. Keeping one's word, whether it be costly or inconvenient, that is the call. God is always true to his word and we must be as well. It is a great test of attitude and character when a person has sworn an oath or made a commitment and later they learn that it is to their disadvantage to go through with it. Pastor John Phillips tells of a Christian speaker, Jim Voss, who was once confronted and questioned by the FBI. In 1950, Jim had been invited to speak at a little church in Gardena, California, to which he had agreed. But soon thereafter, he received an invitation to speak at a large meeting in Boston, one that would certainly up his public credentials as the headline speaker and give him great ministry potential. But feeling as if he had sworn to his own hurt, Jim kept his little engagement in California and spoke there. Well, now sometime after this, this speaking engagement, he was interrogated by the FBI and he was being accused of armed robbery. The FBI believed that he was integrally involved in the Brinks robbery, the Brinks Bank of Boston, which was billed as the greatest heist of the 20th century, where 2.7 million was stolen from the impregnable Brinks Bank of Boston. True story. The FBI thought that Jim was the only person knowledgeable enough to pull it off. You see, just a year earlier, Jim had been a gangster, but he gave his life to Christ at a Billy Graham crusade and was radically changed. And now he himself spoke for Christ. The FBI, however, of course, had not recognized that yet. They didn't see this change. But fortunately, Jim had an indisputable alibi, his small speaking engagement in Gardena, California. He had honored his word, even though it seemed at the time to be to his own disadvantage. It was a good thing he did. Now, not all kept commitments, even at our own hurt, have a palpable payoff on earth, right? But they all will in eternity, I can guarantee it. So what do you do when you've committed yourself to someone but something better comes up? Perhaps you've told one friend you'll pick them up at the airport, but later another friend invites you to a professional sporting game like the Seahawks or maybe a concert you've always wanted to go to. What would you do? Would you hold on to your commitment? Today as a culture, we often lack commitment altogether, right? We've become professionals at playing out our options, right? We all have FOMO. If you don't know what FOMO is, it stands for fear of missing out. 
right? We all are, have uh, contagious FOMO. Friends, it is good to make commitments. It is good to put forth oneself and to commit oneself to another. I'll even say it this way. It is good to commit yourself to a church for membership and for ministry. And yet it is so typical to withhold commitments today. Making commitments to people is honoring to God and a blessing to others. Committing to the church for membership or ministry is a blessing to that church. Don't be afraid to make commitments. Rather, have FOMO toward your relationship with God. Right? Have FOMO toward the eternal reward that you won't get. Fear missing out on that. Not making commitments to others and just being Mr. Last Minute is not helping man and I also believe it's not honoring to God. Let's make commitments to each other. And even if circumstances change, let's stick to them. God is pleased when we give our word and then when we keep our word, even to our own hurt. This is not a call to quit committing. It's quite the opposite. It's a call to commit more and to leave, to live by your commitments. For those who are true to the word, God accepts their worship. God accepts their worship. Now there's one final an interesting avenue of a worthy worship that David, David gives us in verse 5. And then before a final information, let's look at it very quickly. Point 5, look at your cash. Look at your cash. Verse 5 says, He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. Now we don't have time to go into all the Levitical rules on, on lending and borrowing. Uh, you can find them in Leviticus 25, Deuteronomy 23, Exodus 22. But they, these passages make it clear that Israelites were not to lend money to other Israelites out of interest. The idea was that if a brother was in need, they were to help a brother out. They're not, try, they're not to strive to profit off of somebody else's hardship. Interest was often exorbitant in Old Testament times, sometimes as high as 50%. You could ruin, literally ruin a poor man by lending to him at interest. The Deuteronomy passage actually says explicitly that an Israelite can lend out money at interest as long as it's not to a fellow Israelite. He could lend it at interest to somebody from another tribe. And so the lending of money at interest is not itself sinful. It's not that we can't lend money. That's not the application for today. The principle is don't hurt a man who's already down. If you're helping a businessman make a greater profit and by lending money to him at interest, you receive a profit too, there's surely nothing wrong in that. You're both succeeding. You're helping him succeed, not putting him further into poverty. That's the idea. Don't hurt someone who's down. The second part talks about bribes. Bribes were a very common offense in Old Testament times, and they're still quite common in our world today. Many, many uh, third world countries live off the bribe. The rich and well-off will use bribes to get what they desire at the expense and detriment of the less wealthy. The worthy worshiper, however, does not look at a bribe. He does not consider a bribe. He does not take the status of the person or their position into account or what they're offering. He should reject all bribes and strive to put his business and his love where the need is to not be swayed. The application from verse four is this. Are we using our resources to help the family of Christ out of genuine love? Do you only give in your life to get in return? Do you give to get or do you give freely? 
not knowing what your right hand, not letting your right hand know what your left hand is doing, so to speak. The worthy worshiper knows that his cash is from the Lord. He does not manipulate to increase his pocketbook, nor is he swayed by cash to choose against what is right and just. That's the application here. And so we've seen now, from these uh, exemplary verses, we've seen a worthy worshiper, a picture of a worthy worshiper. And David leaves us with the closing affirmation, the very end of verse 5. It's the affirmation of the worthy. He says, He who does these things will never be shaken. Will never be shaken. It's a positive finale. It's an encouragement as you go. If you will pursue the Lord from the heart, by grace, with a living reality in your life, as you come before God Sunday and at all times, God's word promises that you will never be shaken. Notice it's not he who hears these things or he who thinks on these things, or even he who desires these things, or prizes these things, or teaches these things. No, it's he who does these things. He who walks in these things. He who applies these things. Live this way, and you will not be shaken. Speak in these ways, and you will not be moved, God says. It's not guaranteeing a problem-free or trial-free life, but that this person will never be shaken from their position before God, from their right standing before God. God will always accept you and your worship. He is, you are secure in the grace of Christ. You will be a guest in the tent of Yahweh if you are a worthy worshiper. Psalm 23 is the perfect picture of the person who lives the life of the worthy worshiper. God honors him, cares for him, protects him, and ultimately welcomes him into his house. I will read Psalm 23, verses 5 and 6. It says, You prepare a table before me, David speaking to God. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Beautiful. The worthy worshiper will dwell in God's house forever. Maybe you sit here today and you think, this is not me. This is not my life. And an accurate description of you would be far from the worthy worshiper of Psalm 15. And you maybe have very little in common with what this passage teaches. Perhaps it is because you are still in need of the Savior. You've been living for yourself, not interested in others, not interested in helping them, not interested in worshiping God, not concerned about what comes from your lips. It's very possible you've never been saved. You are still hell-bound. Christ can cleanse you. If you repent and believe in him, he will fill your heart with new joy and new desires. His spirit will enter into you and give you new and holy desires. The Queen of England many years ago traveled around Los Angeles. She and her entourage were driving through neighborhood streets of middle to low class neighborhoods. She wanted to see what life was like in America. The Queen on one random street had her driver stop and she exited her vehicle. She then walked up to a house at random and knocked on the door. An older woman opened the door. Her hair was unkempt and she was not well dressed. But upon recognizing the queen, 
She threw her arms around her in a great American hug. The guards and even the queen were taken aback by this inappropriate affection, and yet it was welcomed. This woman had just met royalty for the first time. Friend, you don't need to change yourself before you come to God for the first time. He will change you. Simply confess that you are a sinner and that you need a savior. Believe in Jesus Christ and what he has done on the cross. Friend, if you have never met with God, do not worry about the formality and of cleaning yourself up first. Simply throw your arms around him. Embrace him as your king, your sovereign, your Lord. Do not wait another minute. He may never knock at your door again after this moment. Open your heart to him. Embrace your king. He will warmly embrace you in return. Oh, that we may all leave this place today as worthy worshipers of the King. Let's close in prayer. God, your word is so good. It divides, it cuts into our hearts, into the bone and marrow, and exposes areas of our life where we fall short. It's painful. It pinches. God, I pray that as we consider our lives today, that we would be affected, as I have been this week, that we would be affected by your word, Lord God. Not just to think upon it, but to apply it to change, Lord God. May we be conformed to the image of your Son. Give us a new and holy passion, a new holy desire to look like Christ, to act like Christ, to be like Christ. Father, I pray for the holiness of everyone in this room. God, I pray specifically for those who are not holy and not cleansed by your son's blood, who are not saved, Father, that you would turn their hearts to you. That you would show them their need for a savior, for salvation, so that they might come and worship you, O God, who are so worthy. Save today, save hearts today. May we all leave here worthy worshipers, O God precious son's name.